Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. No match surely this week, so I'm with you till Friday. In today's big thing, we're talking about negative campaigning. Does it ever work and what does it mean for our democracy? But first, it's time for today's Economist panel. Henry Zeppin and Oliver Cam talk us through Labour's chances of winning the next election and Joe Biden's visit to Belfast. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's our favourite part of the show. Every morning we're joined by two expert colleagues to chew over the day's top stories. Uh, Labour are on the front foot, perhaps unusually and uncharacteristically uh, for the opposition. One senior Labour figure tells the Times this morning that Keir Starmer is going to keep up his aggressive tone. This has been generating lots of... Uh, fever discussion in Westminster, his aggressive tone until the next election. The latest advert they published on Twitter targets Rishi Sunak's wife at Charter Murphy over her non-DOM tax status. Uh, this is the Labour Party preparing for the election that we read uh, in this morning's Times and the Daily Telegraph will probably come in the autumn of next year. Henry, I'll start with you. Uh, You've been doing a lot of reporting on Labour's preparations for an election, the internal divisions over their campaign strategy. Uh, Are you persuaded by this new, aggressive, assertive Keir Starmer? And can he take the rest of the party with him? It's a really interesting question. I I think one reason why this has been effectively the main story of the bank holiday weekend... Uh, which I'm not sure Labour were expecting it to be, much as they might claim so, claim otherwise that it was all part of some big plan now, um, is because it does seem quite out of character for Keir Starmer and therefore Keir Starmer's Labour Party. You know, Keir Starmer um, likes to take, and some of his supporters would say he naturally has, the moral high ground. And that was especially so in the dying days of Boris Johnson's government when... Keir Starmer effectively made a moral argument against him that he was not fit to lead. Um, and part of playing dirty, if you want to call it that, uh, is that it does chip away at your ability as Keir Starmer to um, assert that moral high ground. On the other hand, his supporters will say, you don't win elections from the moral high ground, you win them by aggressively asserting your opponent's failings and that this is a necessary way for them to link Rishi Sunak to the Conservatives' 13 years of, as Labour see it, failings before the next election. You had a very interesting interview in Saturday's Times with a politician who may not be familiar to everybody, but you know they will be familiar with her by the time the next election rolls around, Shabana Mahmood, who's Labour's national campaign coordinator. Did you get the sense from her that there's much more of this... To come, it was before the controversy of the advert with the adverts really took off. But did you get a sense talking to Shabana Mahmood that, that this is a Labour Party that is prepared to go on the attack and try and make the weather that the Conservatives usually make 
Yes. In election campaigns. Totally. I mean, I spoke to her before the first ad went out, although I see she's been sort of um, very, very happily tweeting it, which some members of the Shadow Cabinet haven't been doing, which is his own interesting part of the tale. But yeah, one thing that senior Labour strategists, I'm told, keep saying in meetings is that they spend too much time fighting on the government's grit you know, the grid of of news stories that they draw up in Downing Street and in Conservative headquarters and that they want to set their own agenda and get the government fighting on their grid. And on that metric, if that is the right metric or not, but on that metric, this has uh, absolutely succeeded for the Labour Party because the government and the Conservatives have been fighting on uh, a ground that Labour has chosen to fight upon. Oliver, Henry makes an interesting point. This is a a classic Labour complaint that the Conservatives set the terms of any election debate. And it's interesting, isn't it, to see them focus on crime. This week they're focusing, uh, switching their focus rather, to the economy. These are core conservative competencies in the eyes of the electorate, or at least they were traditionally. Yes, it's by no means unprecedented for Labour to take the attack to a Conservative government on these issues. This was precisely what Tony Blair did as leader of the opposition in the 1990s. And there, were, there is some sort of parallel in today's circumstances too. The Conservatives were badly shaken. Their reputation was badly shaken by the chaotic mini-budget, which abandoned um, the sort of principles that the Conservatives are traditionally associated with by introducing or proposing unfunded tax cuts. It's not surprising that Labour are taking the attack to the Conservatives My concern, both pragmatically of whether it will work for Labour and um, in principle um, in respect of of how it affects political debate, is that it is plainly not the case that, for example, the Prime Minister is soft on child abuse, which was the gravamen of Labour's initial tweet um, on uh, tweet expressing its, uh, its attack tactics. And um, I'm surprised, as Henry intimates, that Keir Starmer has taken this course. I'm not sure, I, I don't want to be too po-faced about this, politics is a brutal uh, is a brutal contact sport, but I'm surprised that Labour has taken this approach and I'm somewhat concerned because the um, essence of Labour's appeal since the um, departure of Jeremy Corbyn is that it is a mainstream centre-left party Um, that seeks to replace a dogmatic and ideological government that was badly scarred by the character and personal conduct of Boris Johnson. So I'm I'm a little surprised. Oliver makes the the case for Keir Starmer, as you said earlier, Henry, was commonly understood in Westminster, in the media, by the electorate until until last week, really. There are shadow cabinet ministers and people at the top of the Labour Party who would listen to what Oliver said just now and say, well, he's absolutely right and we are playing a risky game here. Yeah, I mean, that that is an, a, a concern. You know, the concern at the top of the Labour Party and parts of the Labour Party is not just uh, about the, you know, as Oliver puts it, the pragmatic question, will this work? Um, and not even about the sort of moral question, should, should they be campaigning negatively? But whether it goes with the grains of Keir Starmer's strengths with the electorate. Um, and whether um, a leader of the Labour Party who has, uh, whose USP has basically been that he is not like the Tories. Um, you know, I mean, you see, uh, you've seen source quotes through this weekend, you know, quotes from anonymous Labour insiders, whatever, saying, you know, uh, the Tories are going to fight dirty, so we're going to have to fight dirty back. Um, that may well be true. I don't know. I mean, we'll never be able to run the counterfactual. But uh, I am not quite persuaded that Keir Starmer given his supposed selling points, um, can actually afford to fight dirty back without um, flinging mud into his own face or whatever, if that's the right metaphor. Well, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the Conservative strategy for winning uh, the next election. Uh, The Times reports this morning that the government is looking at cutting income tax and increasing the national living wage ahead of an election next autumn. Now, it's been the working assumption of, of hacks in Westminster and Tory MPs that they would go to the country next spring, you know, 12, 13 months from now. 
Briefings uh, in the Times and the Daily Telegraph today indicate that the government instead want to stage what they call a big fiscal event uh, this time next year. What does that necessarily mean? Well, tax cuts ahead of an election. Oliver, looking at uh, the state of the economy and the markets now, given the past year, uh, following on from uh, from the Liz Truss fiasco and looking ahead over the course of the next year with inflation uh, set to come down. Do you think that's a credible path to victory for the Conservatives? Do they have enough time to answer that Reagan question, as they put it? Do people feel better off or at least no worse off than they did uh, than they did 13 years ago? Is there enough time to turn the economic picture around? Well, there, there are two questions that are raised by that um, uh, scenario. One is will it be politically effective to ease fiscal policy ahead of an election? And second, will it be economically sensible? And my answer to those questions is no and no. I take the view that the, uh, the damage to the Conservatives' reputation from prime ministers who successively were not fit for public office in the case of Boris Johnson and who were blinded by dogmatism in the case of Liz Truss Um, These have gravely affected the Conservatives' reputation. and I don't think there's any way back for them. Um, With demographic changes, um, there are a swathe of seats in southern England that I think will go Labour, um, partly because of um, their changing social makeup, their younger seats, their better educated seats, uh, or people with with, uh, degree education. Um, and I think Labour is at a tipping point in Scotland where it could pick up quite a lot of seats from the SNP. So I think it's I, I think the Conservatives are toast from an electoral point of view. The issue of uh, principle um, of economic policy, um, I think it is not sensible to aim for um, a fiscal easing. Um, it, it is highly likely that the Conservatives will still have to rely on um, freezing tax thresholds in order to bring in revenues. And I think it would be a good thing if both main parties, in fact, all the mainstream parties, just accepted that with an ageing society, um, with demographic changes, with pressures on the health service, there will need to be a structural shift in taxation to, to raise more by the, the only measures that, that really work, uh, income tax, VAT and national insurance. Uh, how likely do you think that is, Henry, that, that we're going to hear either party, a Conservative party that is uh, for whom uh, you know tax cuts have taken on a sort of uh, religious, quasi-religious significance and a Labour party that is determined, as we've been discussing, not to be stung by, you know, we talked about 1997, the 1992 tax bombshell attack that pr- proved so damaging for, for Neil Kinnock and John Smith in 1992. How likely is Oliver's sage advice uh, to be uh, to be heard in both uh, party leaderships, uh, extremely unlikely. The the revealed preference of the major political parties that's is, that's is... that's no reflection on Oliver's. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, wisdom, I mean, of course. Uh, on the contrary. Um, but but you know, what what political parties have shown us over the past however long is is if they have a a deep um, structural issue to confront, they would rather pump that as far as possible ahead for, you know, perhaps someone else to have to confront it. Um, you know, and I think Oliver's analysis that it is most likely going to be Labour's uh, still, despite the narrowing in the polls to confront, uh, is is correct. Um, I mean, it's interesting, this story by, by our colleague Stephen Swinford saying that the Conservatives are eyeing a autumn 2024 election to give time for the uh, for supposed tax cuts in a in a spring budget to to bed in, I think the phrase is. Um, it's quite interesting. I mean, in, in Westminster in recent weeks, you've had this idea that oh, maybe the Conservatives are headed for a nineteen ninety two style outcome, i.e., narrow victory uh, clutched from the jaws of defeat, rather than a nineteen ninety seven style outcome. The other John Major election, i.e., dismal defeat. One thing that John Major did in nineteen ninety two, and and it was slightly different because he had to go to the country sooner than Rishi Sunak will have, but they. Uh, Norman Lamont, his then Chancellor, um, unveiled a tax-cutting budget uh, in spring 1992. And rather than waiting for these changes to bed in, uh, they uh, dissolved Parliament the next day, I think, is, if, if I'm remembering rightly, or at the very least, you know, called the election and announced the date of the election the next day and basically made it a do-you-want-our-budget or the Labour tax-bombshell budget, as you say. Um, I think the risk of 
for the Conservatives of waiting for tax cuts to um, quote-unquote bed in uh, is that people will still be feeling um, a severe economic squeeze, even on the most optimistic projections um, as it stands. And so a little bit off their um, take-home pay um, it, it is not, I think, going to be sort of transformative enough. Changer. Exactly. Paul Johnson from the IFS has pointed out that even if inflation falls to the level Rishi Sunak is attempting to, uh, you know, if it halves, as per Rishi Sunak's pledges, even if it falls uh, to the 2% target the Bank of England uh, holds fast to, people are still going to be poorer than they were two years ago. And, and that fails that, that dictum we were talking about, the Ronald Reagan question, are you better off than you were four years ago, 13 years ago, uh, in this case? A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. It's what you do in, in sort of political uh, campaigning. It won't be to everybody's uh, taste. If an attack ad is based on objective facts, then why would we, why do we need to apologise for it? What we're doing with these ads, and they, they punch pretty hard, is drawing attention to the fact that this is a government with a long record. Uh, that was the sound of Labour politicians out on the airwaves defending the opposition's controversial attack advert, which used a picture of Rishi Sunak and said the Prime Minister does not believe adults convicted of sexually assaulting children should go to prison. That pointed, of course, to the Conservative record on offenders avoiding jail. So in our big thing today, we're going to look at the broader question, the ongoing controversy around Labour's new attack strategy has raised. Does negative campaigning in politics work or do all parties pay the price for getting down and dirty in the gutter? Later, we're going to speak to the veteran campaigner Peter Tatchell about the battle for Bermondsey, the by-election 40 years ago this year that's considered one of the most vicious in modern British political history. And we'll discuss how negative campaigning works or indeed doesn't work in the US. But first I'm joined by Steve Parker. He's the founding of the advertising agency Load London and was previously head of strategy MNC Saatchi, the advertising agency behind some of the most memorable campaigns in British politics. And Steve, I'm delighted to say, joins me now. Morning, Steve. Morning. Uh, let me pose the essay question to you, Steve. Do negative ad campaigns work and should we worry about them? I think they certainly work. There's a long history of that in the UK. Um, the 1992 election in particular in 2015, both saw the Conservatives use negative advertising to great effect. And I think it works when the election is in the balance, uh, when it's uh, up for grabs, when it's narrow. Uh, negative campaigning can be particularly effective, uh, particularly for um, opposition parties from trying to seek power. It's it's effective because, you know, negative advertising it's quick to understand and and, and leaves a, leaves a memory. Positive advertising, on the other hand, is uh, you know it's difficult to explain yourself. We're going to improve the NHS. We're going to recruit X many thousand more nurses. Often raises more questions than it answers. Mm. Whereas if you are going to say that someone's weak on the economy, weak on crime, it's something that can stick pretty quickly. Uh, you uh, in your previous role at MNC Saatchi. Of course, uh, that's a name that will be familiar to students of political history, the Sarchis. Uh, you came up with one of the most memorable recent 
political campaigns, the most negative, uh, most memorable negative campaigns, rather, from the 2015 general election. That was a campaign that, as you say there, was very much in the balance. Who was going to win, David Cameron or Ed Miliband? Well, it was David Cameron in the end, precisely because some people would say of this attack line, the picture of Ed Miliband in Alex Salmon's pocket. Here's a clip of the video the Tories ran alongside it. He intends to take a seat, Westminster. And with the SNP seats won from Labour in his grasp, put Mr Miliband into power and then call the tune. Uh... You know, the listeners obviously won't have seen that, but that was a nice video of uh, Ed Miliband dancing the Gay Gordons as uh, Alex Salmon, then leader of the SNP, uh, was the piper playing the tune. Uh, Steve, you came up with that. Talk us through uh, the idea behind it and why it was so effective. Well, uh, firstly, it was um, came up by Jeremy Sinclair and Simon Dickett, who were sort of uh, the lead creators at the agency. I, I was merely in the room, but um, the reason that uh, that ad was so effective is that it awoke, you know it played on a fear that was latent in many voters' minds, that is, that uh, with the SNP performing so well in Scotland, a Labour government uh, could mean a coalition with the SNP, and that would mean you know more money, more uh, efforts and energy put into Scotland, maybe than put into their own constituencies, particularly in the north of England. And that's why negative advertising can work, because it speaks to a fear that already exists. You know, it's not trying to educate someone of something new; it is awakening something within them and, re- and reconfirming that. And that was a particularly impactful ad because it broke out of the usual uh, sort of themes of British political advertising. Labour's weak on the economy. The Tories will trash the NHS uh, and play to something entirely new. And that was uh, particularly strong uh, at that moment in time when the SNP had, what, 53 out of 57 seats uh, north of the border. So uh, particularly for northern constituencies. Uh, where Labour was fighting for votes uh, in that uh, election, it was particularly powerful. And as you say, it played on existing fears. Something a very senior Scottish Labour politician said to me recently was you can't imagine that advert with Keir Starmer in Humza Yusuf's pocket because it was so effective because Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond were such big commanding personalities and Ed Miliband, in the eyes of voters, for better or worse, just wasn't. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, that was why... Uh, we thought Salmon was most effective. He was the biggest figure on the stage, I think, at, at that point in time, you know, particularly where we'd been with the fresh off the Scottish referendum. But that was, you know, a real issue. And, you know, his profile and Sturgeon, you know, as well as, you know, we did the ad with uh, Miliband in her pocket as well, particularly when she went into the, the, the de- leaders' debates and performed so well. So they were, you know, commanding characters and Ed Miliband wasn't seen in, seen in that way so and I think Keir Starmer now is not showing himself to be sort of potentially as, as weak or as as, as controllable as, as maybe uh, Ed Miliband was. Now let's talk about another famous MNC Saatchi creation Steve Parker and that was Demon Eyes uh, the famous poster of Tony Blair uh, with uh, with with demon eyes, of course, uh, and the famous strap line "New Labour, New Danger." That poster was only one part of a much wider campaign, which also included this party political broadcast from late 1996. New taxes, new job losses, new strikes, new mortgage rises, new lighter sentences, and the breakup of the United Kingdom. New Labour. New danger. Uh, but that one didn't work, Steve. It didn't work because I think at that point in time, I mean, you can see they've thrown absolutely every single message at that. It's not really focused. It's every negative thing they can think about in, in, in a list. But the the reason it didn't work is that the idea of Blair being sort of a morally questionable, uh, dubious character didn't really emerge, I guess, for the next eight years. It would have been a very powerful ad, say, in 2005. But... In 1997, when he was, you know, seen as a fresh face of the future, and when it was the Tory party who was seen as being questionable on pretty much everything, particularly on ethics, at the time that an ad attacking his character didn't have an audience. You know, people were willing to give him a chance, so that ad didn't awaken something that already existed in people. It tried to educate them on a new thought about Blair that wasn't in the national consciousness of the time, and as a result, fell flat. But as an ad, it's particularly, you know, it's a good ad as in terms of craft and, you know, it's lasted. Mm. People continue to use it to this day and pastiche it. So it's a good piece of advertising, but 
not one that found an audience at the time. And Labour advisors at the time even named their five-a-side team uh, Demon Eyes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it has, a, it has a, as you say, uh, an integral place now in British political history. You, made, you raise a very interesting point there, though, Steve, um, which is that if you're, the other side has a more compelling message or is playing on more powerful uh, sentiments within the electorate, then negative campaigning's impact is naturally going to be limited. I'm thinking uh, of the Remain side's so-called Project Fear in 2016. That was sort of relentlessly negative, but ultimately it didn't work because the Leave campaign had a had a much stronger message that sort of awoke something in the electorate. Yeah, and it's interesting, that campaign, because you could say that the Leave campaign ran a positive message, you know, 350 million for, for the NHS, famously. Um, but obviously there were lots of negative messages around that, and it's kind of a difficult and fragmented campaigning uh, period. But, I mean, look, we were doing the Remain ads at the time at Saatchi, and it was quite hard to land on a message uh, that was going to cut through and be powerful. Um and I remember there was an ad that uh, was ready to go and was going to go out and it had a grenade. Uh, and it's like, it said, don't pull out the pin. And um, it didn't go out because, you know, on that day was the day that it was going to go out that that Joe Cox wow. um, was was murdered. And it just, I remember being at the agency at the time and everyone looking at each other and going, what are we doing here? What are we involved in? You know, what have we lowered ourselves to? And if you remember that campaign, it's, difficult to remember those you know moments but you know that incident i think was the 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 most the strongest part and if we're going to talk about negative campaigning really where you can end up when it's so vitriolic is in is is in that kind of space so just that was a reflection on that on that time there was no ad negative ad that we could really land that was um that really captured the imagination of the people and then the conversation around it as well was so toxic you realize you were slightly playing with fire uh in in that uh in that campaign so it was a very difficult difficult space to advertise in and, and feel good about yourself afterwards well one of the big questions about negative campaigning is whether they lead as you say to a much more divisive much more vitriolic political culture in general or the kind of thing we now see uh, in america now the watershed as far as some people are concerned is the 1988 campaign george bush senior ran against the democrat michael dukakis here is perhaps his most infamous uh, advertisement As Governor Michael Dukakis vetoed mandatory sentences for drug dealers, he vetoed the death penalty. His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out, many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape, and many are still at large. Now Michael Dukakis says he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts. America can't afford that risk. And infamously, that... The the visuals there were prisoners coming out of a revolving door. Uh, iconic, uh, perhaps for the wrong reasons. Not a million miles away, as I listened to that from some of Labour's messaging on crime. Did these um did these work, Steve? I, I guess they did work. It was a very closely fought campaign. And look, that revolving door uh, ad wasn't uh, you know as bad as the one that preceded it, which was the Willie Horton ad which was a sort of direct dog whistle um you know and essentially a racist piece of advertising that sort of said that you know paid on a black fear mm. uh, in america and, and that really lowers the you know not just lowers the tone it debases politics in, in in that sense by bringing race into it so so um so clearly and, and making that an issue about crime so that lowers the overall debate but you look know, it's fair to have a conversation about crime and and uh, and punishment and and justice and to for- and have that as a key message and to hit your opposition with that message uh, where the lines are on ethics is uh, is an interesting point i think you know for in 1988 saying there's a revolving door policy um is on the right side of the line you know playing on black fear and dog whistle racism is clearly not on the other and if you think about labor's ad on with rishi sunak uh, you know, the only thing that you can contest here is, you know, is it fair play to talk about child sex uh, offences uh, in political advertising? Is that exploitative or, or not? And I think I guess that's a matter I don't know, of taste, maybe. It, it, but it feels in that ad, particularly in the execution of it, Rishi Sunak has for years now built his own personal brand online and through Twitter 
um, through that signature, through his face next mm. to next to policies, and that's then been thrown thrown back at him. And I think that's completely fair, fair enough to do so. And Keir Starmer's been at the receiving end of um, you know, claims by Boris Johnson around uh, his role in, in 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 you know child sex offences. So um, I feel this is a a sign that Labour are, are serious about winning rather than a sign that they have lost touch with their moral compass. Yeah, that's very, and that's very much what senior Labour people would say, that the Tories have been fighting in the gutter as they see it for many, many years and they ought to uh, ought to go on the attack themselves. That was Steve Parker. Uh, he is the founder of the advertising agency Load London and was previously head of strategy at MNC Saatchi, the agency uh, between, behind some of the most famous or indeed infamous attack ads in British political history. Really fascinating stuff. Now, towards the end of our conversation there, Steve and I were talking about American political culture and something we hear uh, pretty often is that uh, you know our polarised political culture is heading the way of the states. Now I've been talking to Alison Goldsworthy she's a lecturer at Stanford University founder of the Consultancy Accord uh, former Deputy Chair of the Liberal Democrats and co-author of a book about political division called Poles Apart I asked her whether Britain was going the way of the US if you don't have institutions that people trust and that they think run fairly, then you've started to undermine your own case. Now, does one attack ad on its own do that? Honestly, probably not. If you are working in concert or it's part of your ongoing messaging, then maybe you've got something to be a lot more thoughtful about. But there's a another point here is people, when they talk about polarisation, they often think, or depolarisation, that means a boring, agreeing middle. And that is also not something that you want. You know, voter choice matters in an election and people having clear decisions between different parties and different candidates is a really important thing. And so does scrutiny matter as well between those. So there are lines to be drawn in how people, you know, mobilise and activate people's emotional triggers and responses to the campaigns that they are putting out there. And I personally would not be entirely comfortable with where Labour has drawn some of those. If you were playing complete devil's advocate, then you might suggest that they've done it very deliberately so that they can get newspaper headlines around ads that I'm not quite certain how much they're spending on, but I'm certain they would not have got the coverage in the news agenda without taking the attack line that they have. It's been a very cheap way for them to get headlines. And indeed, you know, we're pouring over them, uh, you know, across an ocean, literally. So... Um, you know that 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 is perhaps the desired effect. But the you know you've got a pretty unique perspective here as someone who is very active in in British politics as a former deputy chair of the Liberal Democrats, and now sort of you're immersed in um, the US, uh, you know the world of US uh, public life, and also taking a sort of longer academic view from afar of British politics. In your time in America, have you, you know, experiencing American politics firsthand and viewing British politics from afar? Are you are you sort of watching British politics become more American? Is that a sort of gross simplification, or would you say, you know, the differences that perhaps we convinced ourselves were there, you know, uh, perhaps less of that polarization are slowly ebbing away? I think there's definitely always been a bit of a fascination in the UK with American politics. And that's partly, you know, the amount of money, the amount of razzmatazz, it sparkles, it's shiny, it glitters. People like to look at it and they'll spend far more much, far more time digesting American politics than they probably would French politics or German politics or Greek politics or things that, you know, are, are much closer to home. So there's always been that element with what's going on. Having said that, there are general trends in the US and to a certain extent in the UK as well, where people, um, where polarisation is growing and particularly group-based or effective polarisation where people like their own group more and dislike others more. And that's, you know, to a certain extent, a natural thing when it goes on. When it becomes a problem, and this is what's really started to set in in the US and a bit in the UK, but less so outside Northern Ireland, is when that spills over into another part of life. 
So when suddenly you're thinking, I know, I'm more likely to employ this person because I think they might hold the same political views as me. Or I might be more likely to think this person wouldn't have committed a crime when I sit on a jury and I might be more likely to let them off. You know, all of those kind of things. At that point, society can start to fray and people, you know, the basic rules by which we govern and we trust in things, you know... uh, it really ebbs out in them. There are some safeguards that it continue to exist. They're harder in the internet age in the UK that don't exist in the US. For example, things like we're talking on the radio, the regulation of radio that, you know, you can actually track in the US polarisation, you know, really amplifying back to the 80s when the fairness doctrine was got rid of here, um, right, as much as you can to the growth of, of social media. And we have in the UK, they're not terribly fit for purpose, but there are better spending rules and election regulations than exist in the US, which is a real hodgepodge of... of your, that was Alison Goldsworthy, lecturer at Stanford University, founder of the consultancy Accord and co-author of Polls Apart, a book about division in politics. Really interesting discussion there of whether our political discourse in the UK is being Americanized by attack ads such as those we've seen from the Labour Party in recent days. Uh, Patrick McGuire in for Matt Chorley here on Times Radio. We're talking about negative campaigning in British politics. And 40 years ago, saw one of the most negative by-elections in modern political history. Altogether, it's been a raucous and dirty campaign. At times, the people of Bermondsey have been deafened by the rival slogans. We have witnessed an unprecedented campaign in terms of dirt and smear. I don't think there's ever been a candidate in my memory who's had to weather 15 months, because that's when the by-election started, 15 months ago. We've had a non-stop campaign in the media and whispering on the doorsteps a really disgraceful campaign of smears uh, against myself and the Labour Party. Well, that was the campaigner Peter Tatchell, who was then standing as the Labour candidate in the by-election in the very South London constituency. Uh, We're broadcasting from now. Peter Tatchell uh, joins me now. Morning, Peter. Good morning. Um, Listening back to that news report, uh, looking back on the the Bermondsey campaign, uh, very notorious now. I think there's a consensus in British politics that it was ugly and divisive and that you were on the receiving end of uh, some pretty uh, unacceptable treatment from uh, you know your rivals across the political spectrum. But are we now back in a similar place? Is that sort of negativity, personal attacks, the new normal in British politics? Perhaps can I start just by giving listeners a flavour? Mm. At the beginning, when the actual by-election had been called at the end of January 1983, an NOP poll for the Daily Mail, despite all the attacks that I endured, still put me on target to win 47% of the vote, and the nearest rival was on about 20%. But in the subsequent three weeks or so of the campaign, the non-stop negative publicity, partly in sections of the media, but also through attack leaflets distributed around the constituency, my vote dramatically um, dropped and that of Simon Hughes, the Liberal candidate, dramatically increased. Um, the attacks on me were that I was an extremist because I advocated a national minimum wage to end low pay, um, because I advocated a negotiated political settlement to the war in the north of Ireland, and because I said that there should be a comprehensive Equality Act to protect everyone against discrimination. These were all deemed to be extremist policies. Now, of course, today they're the mainstream consensus and even the Conservatives support them. But back then, those attack um, uh, leaflets and um, media coverage turned what was a very substantial lead in the opinion polls into a massive defeat. And on the doorsteps, the Liberals played on the fact that I was gay and supported gay rights. They made fabricated claims that the Labour Council was going to increase the rates by up to 135%, totally without foundation. And it it did completely turn around public opinion, which led to me losing that election in the biggest swing in British political history. Cynics might listen to that in Westminster and say, well, Peter Tatchell has sketched out why those attacks on him, why our negative campaign was was so effective. What is the, you know, what do you, what do you say to people who say, well, look, Peter, you know, it's, we're sorry you had a really rough time, but ultimately it worked. The Liberals won, Labour, Labour lost. You know, that is going to be a, a very powerful, you know, argument 
cynical that may be for political parties who want to take the quickest route to victory? Well, I think you're right. Um, Definitely in some circumstances, at least, negative attack ads do work. (laughs) They do get a result. But I think, as many people would argue, they also debase and demean politics. They're the politics of fear and ignorance and prejudice. That's not the way a democracy should be run. You know, people want to really hear and need to know what parties stand for. So with Labour's recent attack ads, um, I want to know what is Labour going to do to stop child sexual abuse and to make sure that offenders end up in prison um, and that children are protected. You know, Labour attacking Rishi Shunak in this way is not saying what they're going to do. How would they solve the problem? And that's the key thing. We need to have a politics based upon credible alternatives, not just on negative campaigning. Can you imagine or can you foresee a by-election or indeed any election campaign being fought quite as viciously as Bermondsey was 40 years ago? No. And there's never been one before or since. I mean, most commentators described it as the dirtiest, uh, most violent and definitely most homophobic election in Britain in the 20th century. Um, Thankfully, um, we have moved on. You know, the Batley and Spen by-election was pretty rough. Mm. There were some pretty awful negative attacks there, again, on the Labour candidate, um, but nothing on the scale of Bermondsey. I mean, I had 150 violent assaults during that campaign. I was kicked, punched, spat at, had dogs set on me. There were 30 attacks upon my uh, flat and uh, even two arson attacks uh, on my home and a bullet through the front door. (laughs) There has been nothing, thankfully, like that since. And what would you say to politicians, candidates who are on the receiving end of of negative campaigns? How do you... What is the best way to reply? Because the Tories clearly will fight fire with fire. Um, I'm sure there's a piece by Morris Saatchi, the ad man in this morning's Daily Mail, which mocks up, uh, you know, potential attacks, similar attacks that the Conservative Party could make on Keir Starmer. But, you know, based on your experience, Peter Tatchell... How best to respond to negative campaigning? Well, of course, during that campaign in Bermondsey in 1983, I never resorted to negative attack campaigning. I stuck on the policies um, to try and make life better for people in that constituency. But sadly, it did not work. But even so, I I would say to people, you know, today, um, focus on what your alternative is. You know, if there are valid reasons and it's factual and accurate, of course, criticise your opponents. But stick to the facts. You know, I think that attack out on Rishi Sunak was quite unfair because he'd only been uh, an MP since 2015. He'd only been prime minister since last year. Um, I think what people want to know is what would the Labour Party do as an alternative? And I think we have to try and lift up politics rather than push it down. Well, Peter Tatchell, uh, the veteran campaigner who stood for Labour, of course, in Bermondsey in 1983, perhaps the ugliest by-election campaign of modern political times. That was today's big thing on whether negative campaigning works and what that means for the state of British politics. You heard from advertiser Steve Parker, polarisation expert Alison Goldsworthy and veteran campaigner Peter Tatchell. Now we're asking what if our daily feature on political counterfactuals. I'm joined by Sir Simon Jenkins, former editor of The Times, to ask what if Margaret Thatcher had never sent a task force to retake the Falklands. Remind listeners, how contentious was Mrs Thatcher's decision to send the task force? Was there much debate in Westminster at the time? Was it a controversial decision or was it the only obvious course of action she could have taken? Oh, there was certainly a controversy surrounding it. I think, I think the Defence Secretary, John Knott, was against it. Um, there was quite a strong feeling that this was a reckless attempt to save her career. Um, it, it was, it was um, what might be called a crude first step of what might happen next in the Falkland Islands, it was not seen as a declaration of war at the time. So it wasn't quite as dramatic as it seemed in, in retrospect. But, um, but no, certainly it was, it, was, it was a controversial decision. 
obviously, um, some people thought it was, it was it was spectacular, possibly glamorous, um, certainly brave. Um, but it was to her anyway. It was inevitable. She really thought she was, she'd had it as prime minister if she didn't do this. And that's you raise an interesting point about the domestic political ramifications. But let's focus on the the Falklands just for the moment. What would the alternative be? Say if Britain had not sent the task force, what was the alternative? Was it negotiation with the Argentinians over uh, joint sovereignty or a leaseback arrangement, as I believe they'd been discussing with the UN? You know, what was the sort of appetite of the international community for a negotiation that would inevitably end with Britain handing the sovereignty of the islands over to Argentina? Uh, the answer is yes. Um, there'd been extensive negotiations underway in New York at the time um, with Nicholas Ridley. Uh, uh, most people thought the situation was pretty intolerable, um, uh, but that some form of, 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 of compromise was the best way of, of approaching this. And least back, as you mentioned, was the obvious one. Um, so- sovereignty would be ceded to the, to the Argentinians, um, for which there was some justification in past history. But it just sort of made sense, while at the same time, the Argentinians would agree, and there had to be some United Nations um, oversight of it, to British administration of the islands continuing. Uh, and that would have been a satisfactory outcome of it. It was negotiated by Peruvian um, President Belaundi uh, during, uh, during the actual war, I mean, during the lead up to the war. Um, so all forms of compromise were on the table at the time. Um, it didn't turn out that way, but that's what, that's what, uh, that's what was being proposed at the time. And the domestic political situation was very interesting. You referred to uh, Mrs Thatcher's desire to save her career and it, the, the task force being perceived in that light. It's important to remind ourselves that she wasn't sort of imperious and all concrete at this point. This was towards the tail end of her first parliament as prime minister. And you have the Liberal SDP alliance polling as high as 50%. Um, is there a world in which... Uh, you think the Prime Minister, Mrs Thatcher, doesn't send this task force and we don't have 11 years of Thatcherism uh, or rather, you know, our first female Prime Minister. But in 1983, it's not a story of Labour's annihilation, but a, a new kind of government and a new politics entirely. Well, your question is the great question of what if politics ever since. I mean, I lost track the number of times people ask me your question. Um, I think, and I'm not in the majority necessarily, but I think that that she would have been for it if she hadn't sent the task force. Uh, she was very unpopular. I mean, she had, the early 80s were an intensely unpopular time for her. Um, uh, her big opponents were not just the Labour Party and um, the mass of the trade union movement and the British left and centre generally, but they were within her own party. I mean, that she was widely thought to be to be vulnerable at the previous uh, previous winter's uh, Tory party conference. Uh, she was lucky in many ways to survive that. So she was in, she was in very weak position. Uh, and when she heard about the, the, the conquest of the thick Falkland Islands, she was totally devastated. And I think she she um, she just thought this is this is I've got no alternative but to do this. And indeed, it was really when when the when the, um, the head of the Navy uh, saw her that night and said, why didn't we send a task force, task force? And she virtually said, do you think we could do that? And he said, yes, uh, that, that it went ahead. Um, I think if the head of the Navy hadn't said that, it was possible they wouldn't have, been able to, wouldn't have sent one because it was a very high-risk thing to do. Anyway, but the fact is, it so transformed her standing both in Britain and in the world uh, that, that um, all subsequent discussions of Thatcherism were different. Mm. Point is, the night of the invasion of the of the Falkland Islands, Mrs. Thatcher was very, very insecure in her job. And afterwards, you know, we, we are speaking now uh, in a country transformed by her eleven-year rule, and as you say, that that was a crucial juncture. I mean, just one final question. Let's return to the Falklands. Had the task force not been sent, and the outcome been some form of Argentinian sovereignty, is there a world in which you know that ultimately? This was about the self-determination of the, the Falkland Islanders as much as it was Mrs Thatcher and none of those people. You know, look at the referendum that was held fairly recently, uh, about a decade ago, where it was sort of something like 99.9% in favour of continued British rule. Is there a world in which the Falklanders desert their islands, do you think, and think, well, hang on, we don't want to, we're, we're British, we don't want to live under Argentinian rule? Well, I'm slightly buzzed. I think I think it is crazy to to to, to we're spending six million pounds a year on the Falkland Islands now. Um, 
the, the, the amount of money we've spent defending the Falklands against Argenti the Argentinians, who are never going to give up their claim to it, it's completely crazy to think they will. This is an offshore, this is, this is like the Isle of Wight or, or, or the Isle of Man to Britain, uh, to them. And, um, and I just think sooner or later, we're going to have to do some sort of deal with Argentina. The only question is which government has the guts to do it. But certainly, uh, in, it undoubtedly changed British politics, no doubt at all about that. Democracies love wars. It's a terrible reality. Uh, and they love wars when they win. Uh, it has to be said, the task force, even as it was sailing south, there was no guarantee it would go to battle, go into mm. battle. And even when battle started, there was no indication it was necessarily going to win. It was a very, very risky venture. Uh, and they were quite lucky to win. But they won, and Mrs. Thatcher reaped the reward for that. But the, pre the precedent it's set, as you say, is that the Falkland Islands has become one of the great untouchables of British politics. No government, even if, as you say, it is probably rational economically or geopolitically, will ever, will ever surely never go there because of because had Mrs. Thatcher not sent uh, the task force, maybe we'd be open to talking about a negotiated settlement, but she set the bar very high in terms of what a British government was prepared to do to protect the self-determination of the Fulton Islands. She changed the parameters of what's acceptable for debate on that sort of thing. Uh, yes, she did, I think. Um, but uh, all I'm saying is never say never. Mm. Um, th th there's no way the Spaniards are going to give up fighting for Gibraltar. There's no way the Argentinians are going to give up fighting for that. We, we, we I mean, you and me are the children of, the, of, of imperialism. Um, and we still tend to think that way. Um, the, the, the reality of world politics is um, some situations created by empire are intolerable in the long term. And the, the, the cost, the sheer cost of supporting the Falkland Islanders, each one of those islanders has got millions of pounds out of you and me. Um, that, that, that cannot go on forever. It will not go on forever. And I think eventually the Falkland Islanders themselves will realise that. That is an important part of it, you're right. But we were planning at the time, lease back, which was, which was not what they wanted, but it was what the British government wanted. Well, Simon Jenkins, former Times editor and co-author of The Battle for the Falklands, thanks very much for joining us. To answer the question, what if Mrs Thatcher had never sent a task force to the Falklands? We probably wouldn't be talking about Mrs Thatcher in the terms that we do now, was one of my big takeaways from that conversation, of course. Could she have won that landslide in 1983 without the Falklands? Would the Falklands now be under Argentinian sovereignty? Lots of questions that we take for granted in British politics now, thrown up by that as Simon Jenkins said there, so Simon Jenkins said there, spur of the moment decision on the night of the Argentinian invasion. That's all we've got time for on today's Red Box podcast. I'll be back tomorrow. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from.